The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Jason has the night off. We've got a two-guest program for you tonight. In the first hour, we're going to be bringing in Dylan Avery. Dylan is a documentary filmmaker. He's uh, kind of created an internet sensation with his first documentary called Loose Change 9-11. And it was uh, a piece of work that really set off a firestorm of conspiracy talk over the 9-11 attacks. Um, he gained a reputation as a very serious filmmaker uh, from that particular work that was uh, became viral on YouTube. He followed it up with a film called Black and Blue. And uh, another one called A Field Full of Secrets. And he's got a new one out. I'm not even sure if it's out yet, uh, called Magic Molecule. And uh, we're going to be talking about all of that with Dylan in the first hour of the program. And then in the second hour of the program, Lee Austin, who is a uh, uh, returning guest to Beyond Reality Radio. He's been on before talking about his book, Morning Star's Tale, uh, which also uh, is relates to flat earth theory. And he has a new article out that's causing quite a stir in the flat earth community uh, that presents a, a side of this discussion that may or may not have been discussed before. And he'll be on in the second hour of the show to talk about that. Of course, we'll take your phone calls uh, during that second hour as well. Hey, I don't know if you can notice this whole weekend thing that um, I had the fundraiser and, and played in all the bands, did all the singing and the screaming and the, Staying up too late and all that stuff. Uh, my voice is still just gone. Um, thankfully, it's Wednesday. Tomorrow night is uh, the last live show of the week. Is Friday we do a best of. And we'll be bringing Lee Harris into the program. Lee is an energy healer. He'll give practical guidance, inspiration, and cl- a clear blueprint for growth and change, including how to invoke the help of our spirit guides and angels. That's information that everybody can use at some point or another. So you can see we've got a lot of great stuff coming up. Um, I want you to check out Scaricon.com if you're a fan of horror, sci-fi, or paranormal entertainment, television, or movies. Uh, go check out that website, Scaricon.com. It's an event that's coming up June 7th through the 9th in Framingham, Massachusetts, just outside of the, out of Boston at the Sheridan Hotel there. It's going to be a great weekend of a lot of fun. Um Because we have two guests, we're going to get right into it here. So I'm going to take a break. We'll come back and bring uh, Dylan Avery, and he'll be our first guest tonight. We'll talk about his documentary films, uh, including Loose Change, Black and Blue, and the new one, Magic Molecule. That's all ahead. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description, description of the podcast if you're a podcast listener and you scroll down to the bottom there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app and it's only 99 cents a month it's less than a buck you probably have that change in your couch right now that dollar a month less than a dollar goes a long way in helping us produce this program provide great interviews for you during the course of the week i thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Great show lined up for you tonight. I'll remind you the phone number is 844-687-7669. When we open up the phone lines for your calls, comments, questions, uh, we look forward to that part of the program always. We have two guests on tonight. Later in the program, Lee Austin will join us to talk about a new idea that he has in relationship to the theory that the Earth is actually not a sphere spinning through space. It's actually flat, part of an enclosed system. Um, there are other other uh, parts to that theory that vary from uh, person to person, but Lee has an idea that he wants to discuss with us. He's written an article about it, and we'll bring him in in the second hour of the show. The first hour of tonight's program, we've got Dylan Avery joining us. Dylan is a documentary filmmaker. His website is IamDylanAvery.com. His films include Loose Change, Black and Blue, and he's got a new one that's out called Magic Molecule. And Dylan, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's an honor, pleasure to have you here. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. All right. So the first thing I need to get out of the way is I just found out from my assistant producer, Orion, that you are actually someone who grew up in my hometown of Oneonta, New York. Yes, sir. That's pretty exciting stuff. I don't usually get a fellow Oneontan on this program, so that's kind of neat. How long were you there? I mean, was it your whole childhood or what? Pretty much. Uh, I was born in Leesburg, Virginia, and then we moved to Franklin when I was about three or four, uh, spent a little bit of time in Franklin. And then when I was in sixth grade, we moved to Oneonta. I stayed there until I was 19 or 20 and then, uh, moved down to DC for a couple years, moved back to New York. Um, and then in 2008, I moved to LA. So I, I spent a, a good, good chunk of my life in upstate New York. I would there was a time when I would have said most, but I've now been in California for 10 years, so it kind of throws off that math a little bit. So as we get into talking about your career here, um, how much of any of your work can you um, source back to your days in Oneonta? Not 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 as far as subject matter per se, but just maybe influence. Uh, influence? I'm not so sure about that. I mean, the <laughs> so one not- thing I can say... <laughs> well, I mean, the, the one thing I can say is that you know, since you bring up loose change, there was a point when, you know, it was it was pretty popular. We were getting a lot of press, and we were, um, you know, we were working with KPFK for a lot of their fun drives. Um, you know, we actually kind of helped save the radio station at one point. But um, but basically, we had a we were having a long debate about whether we should move out to Los Angeles. You know, not even whether we should, but rather that we should move out to Los Angeles. And we were talking about packing up a trailer and where we could move to and all this, and then. You know, Corey, my best friend and kind of partner in the loose change thing, he, you know, he had just gotten out of the Army, so he went back to Oneonta just to kind of make a trip back home. And while he was up there, he was, like, driving on a back road, and he called me. He's like, you know, man, instead of, like, moving all the way up to L.A. where nobody really knows us and, you know, there's there's really no guarantee that anything's going to happen, what if we move back to New York for a bit? Um, and I was kind of, I don't want to say I was over D.C., but I was ready for a change of scenery at that point. And, you know, the, the change of scenery... I didn't expect it to be Oneonta, but there was an advantage of moving back there where, um, I mean, actually, yeah, there's there's um, probably a school of thought that we wouldn't have gotten the media snowball that we did because it was all because uh, Cindy Sheehan came to speak at SUCO, our local state college. She went to speak there. Um, my alma mater. It's my alma mater, yeah. actually. Yeah. Exactly. She went there to, to speak about the death of her son, Casey. You know, she, she's... Cindy Sheehan, she's the famous anti-war mom. That's right. If you paid attention, yeah. If you paid attention at all during the Iraq War, you heard about her. 
Um, so she was kind of doing a speaking tour. She came to Suco, and we had actually just made up our brand new Investigate 9-11 shirts. We had burnt DVD copies of the second edition of Loose Change that we were just putting the finishing touches on. Um, and then, so Cindy spoke, and then actually before she spoke, um, we had noticed that there was a reporter across the room uh, from WICZ, which was the Fox affiliate out of Binghamton. You know, we actually kind of recognized him. We're like, "Oh my God, is that is that Doug Colk from TV? We should we should go over there and talk to him." And so it's it's really kind of a funny moment, and part of it is captured on camera, where um, we're like, "All right," you know, really, we had like a football huddle, and we're like, "All right, we're going to go over there, and we're going to say this, and we're going to do that, and we'll give him a copy of the movie." Um, so Corey stands there to man the man the camera. And Jason and I start walking over to Doug. And as that happens, Doug actually starts walking over to us. And we actually kind of meet in the middle of the auditorium. And he's like, can I interview you guys about your shirts? Um, so we did. We went over. We did an interview. I spoke. Jason spoke. Corey spoke. And uh, when the Cindy Sheehan piece aired, we were like, there, there's no way. I mean, he's not going to put us in there. There's no reason for it. Um, and so it aired, and we weren't in there. And we were like, all right, we're that kind of figures. And then Doug called me, like, probably a couple minutes after the show aired, and he was like, hey, guys, I know that, you know, you, you weren't on tonight, and that's because I've decided that I'm going to give you guys your own segment. We're, we were just, like, blown away at this point. Like, you know, we're, we're just starting to wrap up the second edition. We're, like, contemplating the, you know, we're just contemplating the what-ifs of what happens when this movie gets released and just what it means for people to be talking about it. And here we have a reporter calling us up, not only telling us he's going to do a segment about the film, but asking us advice on what he should put in the segment. I was like, oh, well, you should probably mention Building 7 over here, and you should mention this over there. Um, and before we knew it, like two, three nights later, uh, we were we had a special dedicated to us airing on WICZ Fox 40, and then it actually got so popular on the web forums, and it started getting passed around from website to website, and then eventually a bunch of websites in Germany started posting it, and then basically the story got so much traffic that it crashed their website. And actually, they had to do a third follow-up piece on how the story broke their website and how it crashed their servers. Uh, so th there is there is something to be said that if we had moved to L.A. instead of Oneonta, that we wouldn't have gotten that huge push that we got that really helped kind of launch us into the stratosphere. So what came first for you? Were you questioning the official account of events at uh, that occurred on 9-11 first? Were you a filmmaker first, or did all of it come together with um, an aha moment at some point? Um, I guess I always had my subconscious doubts about it. Um, nothing like too, nothing too black or white, nothing too definitive. But I mean, because I just obviously didn't have any information at that time. But there was just something about it that felt off. I suppose I know that that sounds really like airy fairy and just kind of like not really conclusive but it's just just our government's response to the attacks or the lack thereof the fact that the attack even happened it was just kind of those basic questions that a lot of people were asking that i think what kind of were motivating me at the time so i, I think that, that was really kind of the general consensus shortly after 9-11 and for a while afterwards is like how exactly did this happen and how can we prevent it from happening again and then the more you looked into it and when the military started releasing different timelines of when they had scrambled their jets, where they had scrambled them from, um, you had suspicious things like them trying to appoint Henry Kissinger as head of the 9-11 Commission. Very shady things started happening. Um, 
And so, you know, it was right around that same time I was trying to develop a script. You know, I had already I had participated in the first Project Greenlight, which I think was like 98 or 99. Uh, before that, I had edited my first music video at like age 13, 14. So growing up, I, I aspired to be a programmer and I wanted to make video games. And then I, at some point, the tide just kind of turned and I started focusing more on film. So you started you know, to... I'm sorry. So you you had you had an idea that you wanted to wanted to make films. You were questioning. I just want to make sure we get this in before the break here. And you were started to question the official event uh, account of events on 9/11. Uh, but wh- at what point did you decide to turn this into a documentary film? Um, that's a, a long answer that we'll probably have to wait until after the break. But okay. yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is that it was supposed to be a narrative feature film, and then I realized that the film that I wanted to make was just not feasible for an 18 year old with no budget and not really a lot of resources and only his friends as actors. So so, it was a logistical decision. Yeah. But, and and I read, I read somewhere that um, you started with a few thousand dollars and a compact presario computer, which many people don't even know what that is anymore because compact's gone. Um, Yeah. But is that true? Basically, and I mean, the, the couple thousand dollars included the cost of the laptop. So <laughs> the laptop was about a thousand, thirteen hundred, something like that. And then um, a whole bunch of 9-11 commemorative DVDs and, you know, news DVDs and anything I could take footage from. Uh, and that, that was basically the dollar cost of it, a laptop and footage. And, you know, and then uh, while I was living in D.C., my roommate or my a DJ moved in from LA who turned out, you know, became my roommate, and that was DJ Schooly. Because um, before he had moved in, I was just kind of using a, a crappy Walmart mic, and I was just kind of using like, you know, Beastie Boys instrumental tracks and different stuff because I didn't know anyone that made music really, not anything that fit what I was trying to use. So right, it was it was pretty fortuitous that my new roommate happened to not only be a DJ with a really nice microphone that allowed me to record voiceovers with it, but also a guy who makes some really cool beats. And that, so, was, so, that was really when things kind of came together. Yeah, we have a couple minutes here. Um, so you uh, put this film together basically on a shoestring budget, budget on a rather simple consumer-grade uh, laptop computer. And did you have an intention to give it to try to find some theatrical release or something, or was it always intended to be an Internet film? You know, I, I did, I did in my in my ignorance try to call a couple of theaters and talk to talk about what it would mean to actually get it played properly in theaters. Um, I did, however, uh, while I lived in D.C. on September 11, 2004, the three-year anniversary, I did have a screening at Vision Cinema, which is unfortunately no longer in business. Um, but it was this really awesome independent theater um, just outside DuPont Circle, which is kind of like north, northwest D.C. But um, I did, I it did actually show in a theater at one point, um, not including all the countless other times that it's been screened at, like, festivals and events and things like that. But it did screen on the third anniversary in Vision Cinema in D.C. But, you know, apart from that, I submitted it to Con. You know, I submitted it to a couple of festivals. Yeah. Um, when the but, film um, when the film was finally released and people started to see it uh, w- with some regularity, uh, what was the reaction that you got right away? Did you get some hate mail? Um, in the beginning, it was you know it was really I don't want to say kind of in for it, but a lot of the 
the first edition, a lot of people that were watching it were already kind of on board. Right. Um, you know, it was it was pretty popular in the Let's Roll 911 forums. It was popular in a couple of sites. So it was really, I don't want to say it was preaching to the choir, but a lot of the first edition was people who were already aware of it and were just kind of pursuing, um, just kind of pursuing new... Yeah, they're looking for more to, information to support know, their ideas. Uh, that's pretty basically. common. Yeah, that's pretty common. Yeah. Yeah, so that that was that was basically it. It was only after the second edition came out and went supernova that you know we started getting all different kinds of lovely email from people. But I mean, at the end of the day, I, I think what's very interesting is that a lot of that hate mail. I mean, I don't want to say all of it because that's too definitive, um, and it's not true because there were a couple. But ninety nine percent of the hate mail we got was from people who just didn't agree with us and didn't like what we had to say, which is mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. But when you compare that to the volume of people who were affected by 9-11 that contacted us, whether they were just there that day walking by the towers and they saw what happened, or they were a 9-11 family member, like uh, the sister of the pilot of Flight 93, she emailed us at one point. Because cause at one point we were like, all right, well, we we need to take whatever money we are making and we need to give back somehow, you know, we need to show that we're in this for the right reasons. And around that same time, we started getting emails from people who were like, Hey, I've heard about your movie. I kind of have my own questions about what happened that day. I I lost my, my brother here or, you know, my father there. And I've heard a lot about your movie. So I was just wondering, you know, most people like offered to pay for a copy. We were like, no, we'll just, we'll just mail you one. Like give us your address. Cause we had these spindles of DVDs. Um, made up the word in cases, just, you know, screen printed, you know, professionally pressed, but just, you know, single DVDs ready to hand out at rallies or to mail out to people. So that was, um, that was a big thing. I mean, yeah. you could, you could go to the internet archive and go look at old, old copies of our website and you'd see a giant banner on the top that says, and we'll gladly send a free DVD to anyone that was affected wow. by September All right. So we got to jump to break here quickly. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Dylan Avery. It's beyond reality radio. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. Uh, one of the things that uh, is very important to mention, because uh, tonight's topics, both with our current guest, Dylan Avery, who uh, is a documentary filmmaker and has a film called Loose Change 9-11 that talks about conspiracy theories or uh, ideas that have been talked about by a lot of people that the official account of the 9-11 events are not the true account. Um, we we uh, we like to talk about things that are controversial on this program. We think it's important to hear all sides of every discussion. And we're going to do that uh, not only with this discussion with Dylan, but we're also going to do that with Lee Austin later in the program. And we've got some more topics like that coming up on the show because we think a good debate is healthy. And it, uh, it also opens eyes and minds and uh, doors sometimes. So, again, uh, we're talking with Dylan Avery. He's a documentary filmmaker. Dylan, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about loose change because... Um, we don't have you for very long tonight, uh, but I do want to get a sense of. Uh, yeah, you were, you, I, I thought I was coming on to talk about my CBD yeah, documentary. Yeah, uh, ab- the nine eleven thing was a bit of a curveball. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to do that to you. It's just, it's just, I'm so curious about it. But um, just, for, I, I don't want to belabor it. But I'm just curious as to um, at what point. It, from what I understand, your documentary is kind of was kind of blazing the trail of a lot of these ideas and. Um, a lot of people refer to it when they talk about how they became curious about this particular topic. Did you recognize that, that you had that kind of powder keg on your hands when you made the film? 
Uh, when I made the first edition, I mean, it, it definitely got a lot of positive feedback, and a lot of people had even said, like, this is, because they were, you know, the documentaries about the topic were, I don't want to say kind of few and far between, but yeah. I mean, it was basically Alex Jones and, right. you know, whoever, a few other people that were making their films. And even when a specific one in plain sight came out and everyone started raving about that, I was like, oh, well, man, I don't, I don't know. Like maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I got beat to the punch, you know, maybe someone already made the like definitive piece on this, but you know, I'd already, already put so much into it. I wasn't about to give up, but I mean, the, and you know, to a, to a much larger extent when Fahrenheit 9-11 came out, and specifically not even really on a, a personal scale, but when that film came out and the press started making a big deal about Bush sitting at Booker Elementary and like, oh, well, Michael Moore found this exclusive footage and it shows this and that, and it's like, okay, but the 9-11 movement has had that footage for a couple of years now, and we've been talking about it for years. But now suddenly, because Michael Moore puts it in his documentary, it's right. like okay to talk about it. I don't want to say it's okay, but you know, it's like oh well. So they take notice all of a sudden, yeah. Yeah, so all of a sudden they're noticing this thing that we've been talking about for years um, at that point. So, so things like that, you know, it definitely caused me to be like, oh well, I don't, I don't know, like you know, maybe no one's really going to care about this when it comes out. Um, and so you know, it started getting the pretty positive reactions to the first edition, and that was great. Um, and, you know, even the second edition when we were finishing it up and we were showing it to a couple of people, they were like, yeah, this is, you know, a lot of the changes you made are really good. Like this is, this is definitely going to do really well. But I mean, the, the, the idea was never for it to really do well and for it to be this giant cultural phenomenon. Like I literally was just making something because I was sick of trying to explain my thoughts to people. I mean, it was, it was hard to try and distill everything that I felt I knew at the time down to a conversation. So it was much easier for me to distill it all down to a film yeah. and hand it, hand it to someone and be like, Hey, just, you know, take this home and watch <laughs> it when you have some spare time. And, you know, and that way, you know, they kind of, they watch it on their own terms and on their own time. They're not feeling pressured. You're not asking them about it at lunch break on, you know, at, at work when they're just trying to relax. Um, you know, it, it, it allows them to digest it on their own terms and in their own time. Um, which I think was kind of helpful because again, I, and I'm not the kind of person who likes to go around like lecturing people or like, Oh, you know, well you should, if it comes up in conversation, I'll talk about it. But I, I definitely didn't want to be the guy that talks about nine 11. And I, I hate, I was going to say the conspiracy guy, but I really hate hearing nine 11 associated with conspiracy theories. Cause mm -hmm. a, a lot of the questions that have been asked and a lot of the issues that have been raised have been raised by people who were there on that day uh, the Jersey Girls, the Family Steering Committee. I mean, we wouldn't have even gotten the botched 9-11 commission that we did get if it weren't for the family members speaking out and saying, hey, there's a lot of things about this that don't really add up, and we kind of want you to do something about that. Um, so, I mean, by and large, I think the movement exists because, you know, a lot of the people that were there that day and a lot of people that lost someone that day have a lot of questions of right. their own. and. right. I think a lot of them were starting to feel kind of helpless when the commission did form and it was turning up to be a whitewash. Yeah. Uh, you know, these, these are people that I've personally spoken to who were like, you know, I, I didn't really want to believe that there was anything suspicious about 9-11. And I went, you know, I heard the 9-11 commission was coming to town and I went and I listened to the hearings and I left even more disappointed than I was when I went there. Um, 
you know, a, a lot of people, myself included, were hoping that the 9-11 Commission was going to have answers to some basic questions about that day, and they didn't. <laughs> they, they, you know, they, their, their stated, the 9-11 Commission's stated purpose was that they were not going to assign blame, that, that they were not there to get anyone fired, that they weren't there to get anyone in trouble. And I'm sorry, but that's just unacceptable. Like, you had 3,000 people die in broad daylight, and to tell me that no one's going to be held accountable, like, you're not going to assign blame, like, blame needs to be assigned. Like, that's, that's why you're here right now, is to assign blame. Uh, so there's just, and that's, again, part of my issue with having things like 9-11 equated with, like, the flat earth, because... I, I think they're entirely different. Yeah, well, I mean, nobody's nobody's making that uh, that comparison. It's just that they are controversial topics. Whenever we no, have whenever we that. have somebody I, on this program that talks about either one of those things, we get calls from both sides of the discussion, and we get emails from both sides of the discussion. Oh, people sure. people get very emotional sure. about it. That's that's the connection. I want to move on to the to the um, talking about your new film. But before I do, if somebody was interested in watching Loose Change because we've talked about it, where would they go to see it? It's pretty simple. You can just go to YouTube, and if you look up. Uh, loose change second edition hd i mean that's that's the more controversial one i mean we had one that was narrated by daniel sinjata of fx's rescue me he was on netflix for a bit um that one's called loose change an american coup um which is a little bit more produced a lot of the information in there some people would say it's a little bit more solid just because again it's not as controversial in nature as the second edition um so if you want to watch like the 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 polished professional edition, you'd watch American Coup with Daniel Sanjata. I wish I could still say that you can go see it on Netflix, but you can't. So uh, it's on Amazon Prime. You can probably find it on YouTube, too. Uh, and then, you know, if you want to watch the the super mega viral edition that was released in 2006 that I, you know, keep talking about is the one that kind of went supernova. Uh, so that's Loose Change Second Edition HD on YouTube. We just recently did a remaster of it, uh, and it's free to watch online so if anyone would like to do that um you're more than welcome to. all right <laughs> no so one's gonna stop. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the new film it's called magic molecule what's this about yes, what's this about so this is a 60-minute documentary about cbd which is the non-psychoactive cannabinoid um and it's funny when i was uh, approached to kind of make this film about a year ago like cbd was just kind of starting to take off, like people were slowly starting to learn about it, and it was entering the public's consciousness. It was still illegal in a lot of states, um, even though, I guess, depending on your on your metrics, it's not illegal anywhere, but, you know, that's one of the problems with our, with the quagmire known as our drug laws in this country, where something can be both legal and illegal at the same time. It's very bizarre. Um, but, you know, when I, when I started production of this film, you know, CBD was still kind of unknown to a lot of people and now like cbd is everywhere like i mean walmart's going to start selling it carl's jr in denver they did a cbd infused burger on 420 uh it's it's really been kind of crazy to see how fast it's ingrained itself in the culture and how people are realizing that you know it's that you know a cbd is not about getting high because b cbd and thc are two entirely different things so you know, you have, you have two of the main cannabinoids that affect us, um, you know, from the, the cannabis family. Um, you know, you have THC, as I said, which is the one that kind of gets you high, and that's that's the, the more, I guess you would say, intoxicating compound, like 
if an officer is going to test you for something in your system, he's going to test you for THC. Whereas CBD is the non-psychoactive cannabinoid, but is still responsible for a variety of the healing effects that we associate with medical marijuana. And that's really kind of been the nice thing about this. I mean, not only for me, but I hope for anyone that watches it is, you know, for a long time, I thought it was just THC. I didn't know that there were so many different cannabinoids that serve many different purposes. I had never heard of CBD up until about a couple of years ago. Um, and I think that's partly due to all the research that we've been able to do as, you know, the laws get a little bit more lax and people are able to do research studies and not have to worry about getting their labs shut down. So, Basically, um, you know, there's there's a wide variety of medical uses for CBD. You have uh, little girls who use it to stop their seizures. I mean, the most famous case is Charlotte Figgy, who now has a strain named after her and a hemp oil named after her called Charlotte's Web. Um, you know, basically, this this little girl was suffering nonstop seizures, and I'm I'm very much simplifying the story, but basically, her her parents had tried everything, and then you know she heard from someone or somewhere that hemp oil, you know, the CBD uh, cannabinoid was very helpful for people who were suffering seizures. And they started giving it to their to her daughter, and now Charlotte Figgy has been seizure-free for a long time. And you not only have that, but you also have um, Jayla Jerger, who is another two-year-old girl that is actually featured in the documentary, and her parents went through a very similar thing where they had all these pharmaceuticals being pushed on them, you know, the Child Protective Services not only wanted her to take Keppra, which was which hadn't even been tested uh, on a girl Jayla's age, so they didn't even know if it was safe for her. They wanted her to take that, you know, every day, and they also wanted to do a biweekly blood draw. So they not only wanted to force this medicine on this girl that hadn't even been tested properly, they wanted her to go get her blood drawn every two weeks to prove that she was taking it. And, I mean, we, we have video of one of these first and only visits that they went for the blood draw, and, I mean, Jayla is just screaming bloody murder the whole time. So, and you, and you compare that and the videos of her, like, shaking and freaking out and pushing the Kepper away, you compare that to the video of her gladly taking Charlotte's Web, like, the they put the, the dropper in her mouth and she kind of sucks on it like it's candy. Like, it's crazy compared to how she reacts to the Kepper. So, it's... You know, and that's that's just one example. You have so uh, does, another woman, before, uh, Margaret. Yeah, I just want to I want to I want to ask a couple uh, follow up questions. To what you've already said, please. Um, please. The, I'm I'm not particularly well informed when it comes to uh, the debate, uh, at least the details of the debate over medical marijuana and its uses. And uh, I just know that it exists, and I know that a lot of people um, sing the, the praises very highly. Are you saying that the CDB is the component that is responsible for those benefits, or is it just one of the components that's responsible for those medical benefits? CBD is the main component that is responsible for those benefits. Uh, again, like there's some people that claim that CBD doesn't isn't as effective for them as it is when they combine it with THC. Mm-hmm. But by and large, you know, there's there's several different cannabinoids, and or there's I'm sorry. Because there's hemp and there's marijuana. Hemp traditionally produces the CBD compound, and marijuana typically produces the THC compound. They're both members of the cannabis family, but they're two entirely different strains of the family. I don't want to say strains, but you know, they're they're right. they're two 
two sides of the same coin, I guess, even though those two sides are vastly different. But yes, yeah, so CBD, CBD is the non-psychoactive cannabinoid that can mostly be extracted from hemp plants. And that is, you know, I, I don't want to say largely, but I, it, I mean, the, you know, I, I, I don't think I would have been able to make a documentary about little girls using THC to stop their seizures. You know, there's something about CBD and its chemical makeup. Not only that, there's the fact that we are not the only animals that have cannabinoid receptors. Um, all mammals, as far as I know, um, have cannabinoid receptors. So technically, all animals are, are, are born and built with the ability to ingest cannabis in both of its forms, whether, whether it be marijuana or hemp. So it's it's very it's so, very interesting. Yeah, it it, it is. Inter- we have those receptors in our body. Yeah, it is interesting. Now, does the does the film Magic Molecule um, offer and because you, you just did examples of how uh, CBD actually can uh, help from a medical perspective? Oh yes, all these all these people I've mentioned are all interviews in the film, and there's several others that I've that. I have yet to even mention. Um, Dylan Avery is our guest. His website is IamDylanAvery.com. He's a documentary filmmaker responsible for films such as Loose Change, 9-11, Black and Blue, and the one we're talking about right now, Magic Molecule. Dylan, in your research for this particular film, we've got about three minutes in this segment. In your research for this film, um, you must have talked about or at least listened to people talking about the reasons it's been so difficult to get medical marijuana of any form passed in uh, nationally in all 50 states. Uh, what do you see as the major hurdles that are still preventing that? Well, it's interesting because one of the people that I actually have an interview with in the film is Eric Sterling. He was um, he worked in the House of Representatives and for several major drug legislations under the Reagan administration. Um, and he ironically is now and actually was at the time a marijuana reform activist but um, as he so eloquently puts it, uh, lawyers don't always have the luxury of following their hearts. So it was only after that he left his work with Congress that he was able to start activism work, uh, pushing for legalization and reform of marijuana laws. Um, and there's actually a segment in the film where he does talk about how to solve this situation. And the, the main conclusion is that rescheduling marijuana is not going to cut it like scheduling it down to two or three, like it has to be completely descheduled. Like marijuana needs to be regulated, uh, both from a legal and a uh, financial uh, perspective, as, the same as alcohol. Like they, they need to be on the same page. And I think that is, I think that is the point that we're approaching. It's obviously not happening as fast as people would like, but you have Bill 420 that was introduced this year. You have several states pushing for, if not recreational, but at least medical. Um, and I, I think that CBD has played a large part in turning that tide because people are realizing that it is not just about people that want to get high and that there is a lot about the cannabis plant family that we are still figuring out and still trying to understand. So I think there's hope. And, you know, even in my private circles, I've kind of said to people that I see I see potential full legalization across the board um, by or in 2020. That's certainly what I'd like to see. Um, I don't know if it'll actually happen, but with the speed at which things are moving, you have a number of states coming back with the amount of tax revenue that they're pulling in from marijuana sales. I think Massachusetts just released their numbers. Um, 
millions of dollars in tax revenue going to the states for roads, for schools, for public service programs. I mean, it's, it's a win-win situation. I mean, you're, you're eradicating a black market. You're allowing people safe access to medicine. And you're, you're putting money towards something that's good. I mean, I, I really don't see what's wrong with that at all. And I think that's, I think, you know, Colorado made the bold first step in doing legalization. And unfortunately, I think it was just once their tax revenue started coming in, I think that was really when a lot of other states looked at it and they were like, yeah. oh, wow, that's, yeah. we, we could be making that much money too. Um, right. All right. So, listen. Know, as, as, always, as always, money talk. We are in the middle of a two guest program tonight. Coming up in just a little bit, we've got Lee Austin joining us. Lee is a returning guest to the program. He's the author of a book called Morning Stars Tale. He is also the former talk show host of a program called Outcast Radio. He's going to be talking about some new ideas that he has that supports flat earth theory. And this is a topic that we've talked about rather recently on the show. And we don't like to talk about uh, any single topic too often, but his ideas are new and, and, and a bit uh, timely. So we wanted to get him on to be able to share those with you. Right now we're talking with Dylan Avery, and Dylan is a documentary filmmaker. His website is IamDylanAvery.com. We've talked about his film, Loose Change 9-11, and we are now talking about his new film, Magic Molecule. Dylan, is, is Magic Molecule out already or is it still uh, in the process of being released it is currently scheduled for a july 23rd release uh it's in the hands of random media and uh orchard as well i'm, I'm hoping that after they do the limited uh the limited digital release uh it'll be available on uh, netflix shortly after that um netflix is kind of kind of big on docs and especially on pot docs they're like all the rage right now so it should uh, it should pop up on Netflix if it gets its regular digital release in July, then that means um, August, September, October. Hopefully October and November it will be available on Netflix. That's what I'd like to see. Hopefully that's what happens. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I have to have a call with the distributor um, in about a week or so to talk about marketing and what their plans are and what I think they should do. And, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. You know, the 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 – the founder, I can't say founder, but basically like the the chairman, I suppose, of the uh, Indiana chapter of Normal. Um, he's not only in the film, but he's very excited about it. He said that it was his favorite documentary on the subject, and it's not mm-hmm. just because he's in it. So that's pretty cool. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of hoping that we can maybe, if not partner with Normal in some way, then at least like get a couple shout-outs from the main Normal about the film when it comes out. We'll see, but um, yeah, it just it's it's exciting to get a new film out there. Yeah, and, it is. Know, the black, black and blue, the the police documentary I did that took about three years. So this one was done in about six months, give or take. So it was nice. it's nice to have a much quicker turnaround. Couple quick questions before I let you go. In the process of making this particular film, did you get a perspective or have any discussion with the pharmaceutical industry about any of this? No, no, I, I, I didn't really try because I figured I would get shut down. And even yeah. if I did, like, what would they say? I mean, I, I do, I do have some commentary on the pharmaceutical uh, situation. And in fact, the um, the representative that I interviewed, Jim Lucas, down in Indiana, um, he had some things to, to say about GW Pharma and kind of how it's interesting that once these things things start to get accepted by people that we're also seeing 
company companies announcing that they have cannabis and marijuana based medicines. So, kind of interesting alignment there. Yeah. With, uh, how what about what out. about the med- medical com- community as a whole? Um, do you find it's more sympathetic to uh, the uses of uh, medical marijuana or its derivatives, or do you think it's more still skews toward um, being opponents of that? Um, I can't say with 100% certainty. What I can say is that I'm still uh, a member of a large amount, well, a decent amount of uh, CBD Facebook groups, you know, people just kind of sharing their experiences and, you know, you know, various attempts to get it and et cetera, et cetera. And I do see the occasional post from people saying that they mention CBD to their doctor and their doctor's usually like, oh, well, if you start taking that, then I can't prescribe you your regular medicine and you're probably going to have to find a new doctor in general. Now, granted, this isn't all of them. I'm not, I'm not painting in the medical industry with a broad brush, but there are certainly doctors and, you know, medical facilities out there that discourage any sort of use of cannabis or marijuana, whether even if it's hemp-based CBD, which is perfectly legal in the state, they still how is this uh, how is this generally administered is it, is it an oil form and and how is it administered if it's an oil form um what are the mechanisms by which people actually use this a couple droppers under the tongue that's all it is yeah, just an nice oral. And simple and i mean some of it some of it doesn't taste the greatest so a lot of people either mix it into smoothies um actually one of the women i interviewed um in oregon she actually sent me home with some of her homemade coconut oil uh, CBD coconut oil, and I was putting that in my coffee every morning. That was delicious. It was, it's real. Oh, I mean, you, and you can feel it too. Like I, I put a spoon of it in my coffee, and like you just, you just feel relaxed. It's, it's weird. Like it's not like a dopey feeling, and it's not like an opioid or anything like that. It just kind of calms you. It's really, it's hard to describe unless you've done it. But no, I make it sound. I, may, I feel like I'm making it sound more intense than it actually is. But mm. it's just kind of this instant calming effect and a lot of people that say that they have to rely on traditional pharmaceuticals for pain relief no longer have to do so is it addictive that you're aware incredible what's that is it addictive are you aware of that whether it is or not no not to my knowledge i mean not any more addictive than you know well i almost said any any more than the traditional pain medicine well that's what i was going to ask yeah yeah people people overdose on opioids every day so um I, i guess that i guess that was that would maybe be the one thing I could say is that, from my understanding, it's definitely not as addictive as the things that people are replacing with CBD. I guess that might sound like a cop out, but I mean, it's you know, it's it's not. It has no psychoactive properties. So I mean, even if one were to try to overdose on CBD, you would basically just fall asleep and just take a long nap. I mean, people say that about marijuana too, but I mean, it's it's definitely the case with CBD. Like, there's really no way to overdose on it. Um, you know, the, one of the people I interviewed, uh, Heather, who's the founder of Realm of Caring, which is actually an offshoot of, you know, Charlotte and Paige Figgy. Um, but she actually describes CBD as the Boy Scout, Boy Scout molecule. And then it kind of goes into your body and finds things that are wrong and does what it can to fix it. So, um, it's, it's very interesting. And again, there's still a lot of things we're learning. There's still a lot of things that we don't quite understand, but I think that, you know, with the changing of laws and, you know, the, the relaxing of federal scheduling and being allowed to conduct clinical trials, I think that we're going to see more legitimate research into, and, you know, more studies to basically prove what a lot of people have been saying for a long time. 
Dylan, we're out of time. I appreciate you joining us tonight. I know that you said that this uh, this particular film is going to be released in July. Um, I imagine as a filmmaker that you're probably already looking ahead to your next project. If that's so, what is it? And if not, uh, what are some ideas that you might have that you may want to look at in the future? Um, you know, I don't have anything particularly planned. There's a couple things I'd like to do. Um, really the main thing I'd like to do is direct an actual feature film, which is the main thing I've always wanted to do. I'm kind of working on a, a couple things in that avenue, but, um, that's basically it. I, I actually don't really have anything planned at the moment. I'm kind of waiting to see what pops up while I try to make some moves on my own. Right. Well, great. Well, again, thanks for being here. We appreciate your time and your expertise on all this. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, again, the website for Dylan is I am Dylan spelled with a Y, D Y L A N Avery dot com. You can see uh, a bunch of references to his work there. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll bring our second guest of the evening in. Lee Austin will be talking about an article that he's written recently that talks about the sun and the moon and new theories about that. At least theories that he's uh, presented. He's a freelance writer, uh, former talk show host. And uh, his website is MorningStarsTale.com. I do want to remind you what we've got coming up the next few nights. Tomorrow night, we have Lee uh, Lee uh, Harris joining us. Lee is an energy healer. He'll be giving practical guidance, inspiration, and a clear blueprint for growth and change, including how to invoke the help of our spirit guides and angels. Uh, Tuesday night, John Hogue, who is a prophet and a Nostradamus scholar and expert, will be on the program to talk about Nostradamus' predictions and his work and how it is relevant today. So we have a lot of things coming up, great stuff. Again, uh, we've had Lee Austin on the program. Lee, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. It's great to have you here again. Thank you, JV. Great to be on. Great to be on board once again. Yeah. So, um, by the way, the phone lines are open at eight four four six eight seven seven six six nine. Tonight, we're going to be talking about an article that you had have written recently. Um, I won't even introduce it. I'm going to let you do that. What's this article about? Well, let me just say that the the book itself, Morning Star's Tale, all of it is now on the website. I've decided to give it away. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. if you want to go to morningstarstale.com. It's free. You don't even have to buy it. The uh, the article itself, and, and I contributed this to a, a news website called Before It's News. It's called Sun and Moon, Same Size, Half-Lit Moon, Disproves Reflection During the Day. And what I was talking about, JV, uh, JV, in the article is that during the daytime, there are times when the moon and the sun are in the sky at the same time, and yet... The moon is not fully illuminated. There's times when it may be waxing or waning, but it's very rare when you see the sun and the moon in the daytime sky at the same time. And that, to me, proves that the moon is generating its own unique light, and it's a cold light. And in fact, according to the Book of Enoch, the sun pours its sun light into the moon and the moon actually projects its own unique cold light. And it was something I never even really paid attention to until after I wrote the book. It was a couple months ago. I was just staring at the daytime sky, and I thought to myself, the signs are in the sky that prove the Earth is flat. Why do we keep trying to prove the Earth is flat when we can just prove the heliocentric theory? Did you say, did I hear this correctly, did you say the Book of Enoch talks about the moon generating its own light? 
Correct. In the book of Enoch, it talks about the fact that the moon receives its sunlight from the sun. So over a 14-day period, the sun will fill the moon with its light. It becomes a full moon, and then over the next 14 days, as it's waning, it extinguishes itself. And when I read that the first time, I thought it was insane, but the more I've gone down the rabbit hole, for example, NASA says the moon is 400 times smaller than the sun and is 400 times away from the sun in distance, and that's the reason why the moon and the sun appear to be the same size. Yet in the book of Enoch, it states that the sun and the moon are the same size and that the sun pours its light into the moon over a 14-day period, and the moon actually projects its own light. And when you see the moon and the sun in the daytime sky at the same time during the daytime, and the moon is not fully illuminated, I can't understand the heliocentric theory that says it's actually a reflection, because what it's showing to me is that the moon is actually projecting its own unique cold type of light, and yet the moon and the sun are the same size, according to the Book of Enoch, which is what I believe. Well, we all know that in a solar eclipse, uh, that the moon completely shadows the sun perfectly. And, and there's, there's the illusion or the appearance or the reality that they're the same size. We all know that is, we've all been able to observe that, if not directly in some fashion or another. And what you're saying here is that they are actually the same size. Yes, they are the same size, and when it comes to eclipses, that is one topic that disproves the flat Earth, but there's another belief I've developed in the last six months that, in fact, that is not the Earth's shadow, but it is, in fact, going through a magnetic field that is generating from the center of the flat Earth. I'm becoming a proponent now of not just the flat Earth, but also the hollow Earth, and as we dialogue, you'll, you'll get the impression that I don't have all of my ducks in a row, and I don't because this is continual research, yeah. and as I go further down, I'm learning that I really don't know anything about the flat Earth. I'm beginning to believe not only is it flat, but it's actually hollow, and that there's a whole other conspiracy, if you will, at the North Pole. I believe there's a vortex there. And that leads to center Earth. And I'm becoming a proponent of the hollow Earth. And from the hollow Earth transmits the black sun. And the black sun is is responsible for the northern lights. And perhaps, maybe, just perhaps, the magnetic field comes into play during the eclipse. And it's not really the shadow of the Earth we see on the moon. But, in fact, perhaps it is the sunlight Uh, transposing itself through the magnetic field, which is generated from the black sun in the middle of the Earth. And I know what I just said sounds insane, but this entire topic is insane. Yeah, and we have about a minute here before we have to take a break, but uh, someone in our chat room made a comment saying, uh, I don't know of any planets that are flat. Now, what we're talking about here is we're throwing this whole uh, model that we've all grown up being told is the truth, that we have a bunch of planets that are all spherical and they're all circling, circ- uh, orbiting the sun. I mean, that whole thing has to be thrown out to understand what you're talking about here, right? 
Absolutely. And in the Book of Enoch, he talks about the fact that there are no planets, there are no stars, there are, in fact, what are called luminaries, and they're the result of light bursts. And we can get into what Tesla talked about, the electric universe, as opposed to the gravitational theory of Einstein. And if you want, we can get into that in the next segment, because the uh, illusion of planets and the illusion of stars is center to the foundation of the Flat Earth Theory. I am JV. Thanks for being here with me tonight. The phone lines are open at 844-687-7669. Our guest this hour is Lee Austin, author of the book Morning Star's Tale. His website is morningstarstale.com. And Lee, do you say that if uh, if you go to the website, you can download the whole book for free? Yeah, over the weekend, what I did was I uploaded the entire book. And the reason I did that, I wrote the book because I believe that what was written, for the most part, is the truth. And the book itself was written by Lucifer. He's the narrator. Of course, I wrote the book. But I thought there's been so much discussion and misinformation about Flat Earth. And when you talk about it, it's hard to conceptualize what the Flat Earth is. So I thought, I'm going to write it down concisely in 80 pages, and I'm going to have Lucifer narrate it, because the father of lies decides to tell the truth. And I thought this subject is so upside down. Why not have creation's greatest liar get off his platform and actually tell the truth? So in between the bravado, uh, Lucifer tells the truth about how the universe is set up. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, this uh, article you wrote and the the idea uh, of that the moon and the sun are the same size. Uh, you've talked about how the moon actually has its own light, its own white light. And I think one of the things you mentioned is that one of the things that supports that idea is that if you take the Earth's temperature in uh, a moon shadow versus moon ref- light uh, source, the explain this, because it's colder in the light? Is that what you determined? Yeah, correct. Uh, in the Book of Enoch, it talks about there's two lights. One is the daylight the sun, and the other is the nightlight, which is the moon. And because the sun transfers or pours in its light into the moon over a 14-day period, the sun loses one-seventh of its light over that period. But the moon absorbs, if you will, that sunlight and then projects it out. But it projects out a unique colder light, and you're right, You go out during a full moon in the nighttime, and you have a uh, thermometer temperature gauge, and you put it in direct moonlight, it will be colder than when you move the gauge into the shadow of the dark. So, indeed, the moon does project its own kind of cold light. And the one hindrance I've had on this particular theory, and I don't believe it to be a theory, I believe it to be the truth, is looking at the moon, it's hard to believe that it's a light. But this is how I think of it, as a pitted light bulb. When you, when you think of the moon as a light bulb with pits in it, craters, then it's easier to understand because in the article I say the moon is a hollow, flat, translucent, crystalline, self-illuminating disk one that generates its own type of unique cold light. And during the full moon circle, the luminaries, which we can get into in a moment, the stars and the planets, can actually be seen 
shining through the moon's disk, confirming its translucent composition. So not only does the moon project its own type of light, but you can actually see the stars and the planets during different periods of time shining through the moon, which also adds more evidence to the fact that this is not what we think it is. And the reason I don't believe man never landed on the moon is not because he can't get there, because the moon is on the other side of the dome. In other words, it's only, according to the book, about 3,500 miles away. We can get to the moon. The problem is we can't land on the moon because the moon is not terra firma. It is not land. It is, I don't know exactly what it is, but we can't land on it because it's it's a translucent, crystalline surface. And I don't know what that means or where I got that information, but that's what I believe it to be. All right, so uh, I'm not familiar with this phenomenon that uh, some other celestial bodies, to use uh, what would be the common term, uh, can be seen through the moon. Is this something that there's photographic evidence of, or where did where did this come from? I haven't heard this before. Well, actually, there is a YouTube video. Uh, if you go to Crow Triple Seven, I believe his website was the one uh, and YouTube channel that actually first showed it. He got a uh, high powered telescope and zoomed in on the moon and he could see and he shows you the stars and 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 to get to that next point we were talking about the fiction of planets did you want to delve into that yeah sure yeah yeah let's do that okay this is from the book morning star's tale and again it's narrated by lucifer so he's a little arrogant uh here's what he says about the planets Uh, another deception is the fiction of planets millions of spinning balls rotating around millions of burning star balls. Actually, the planets and stars are a collective habitation of angelic beings known as luminaries and stones of fire. Flickering, sentient, intelligent orbs contained within the sea firmament dome. If you want to see extraterrestrial beings, look up into the night sky. The function of these interdimensional luminaries are to glorify my name. He would tell you otherwise, just one of our many disagreements. I was the first stone of fire to be cast down from the fifth dimension of the third heaven. And by the way, as a side note, Lucifer talks about the fact that there are, in fact, ten dimensions or ten heavens. And actually, that does line up with string theory. I believe string theory is not a theory. It is actually reality that we are all the result of vibrations. And the same is true with the planets and the stars. They are the results of flickering lights. And the luminaries, if you look through a telescope, uh, JV, you'll see flickering lights, the stars, the planets. They all seem to be flickering because what they're doing is they're radiating their light through the sea firmament dome. And it's the sea firmament that is actually causing that ripple effect. And that's why you don't see it with the sun and the moon because they are below the sea firmament dome. And again, the reason man hasn't landed on the moon is that the moon itself you cannot land on it because it's not terra firma. I know it's a lot, but we have a short period of time. Yeah. Um, I want to get into tides, too, because um, one of the things that you reference is the tidal activity and how um, that uh, is also curious in this whole discussion. Absolutely. And again, this ties into the hollow earth theory of which I'm becoming a believer. I'm not, I'm not there yet. It was like flat earth. It took me about a year, year and a half 
But the idea with the tides is that the flat earth resides on this bosom and it, and it flotates. And I know that probably is not the correct phrasing, but it's late night. But essentially the way the tides work is you have this uh, vortex where the North Pole is. And apparently the way it works is that the earth, even though it's flat, will uh, go back and forth. And it's all structured. It's all organized like the sun, the days, and the hours of the moon, and the sunset, all of that. I believe the great architect, the great architect, controls all of it. But because of the floating bosom of the Earth and this vortex at the North Pole, apparently the water goes in and out, depending on whether it's a high tide or a low tide. And when people say, you know, that's insane, I get it. But explain this to me. Why is it? that there is no low tide and high tide in the Great Lakes region, the greatest body of fresh water on the planet. And the reason is because the Great Lakes are not directly connected to the ocean. I know you have the St. Lawrence you know, Canal, the seaway, but that is not a wide connection. So because of the Great Lakes not being connected to the oceans, they're not affected by the tide which means the moon is not controlling the oceans and the tides. It's actually this vortex at the North Pole that man is not allowed to traverse, just like he's not allowed to go to the South Pole. As you uh, put all this together and you start looking at these ideas, um, you know, some people would say to you, how can we prove or disprove that there's a dome involved here? How can we prove or disprove any of this? And there's a lot of other evidence that comes to play when people say, if I stand at, at a certain point on the earth, I can see the curvature over distances. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here that that has to be overcome to accept some of the things that you're talking about. You're talking about indoctrination. You remember, J.V., the first time you went to school, one of the first things you saw was a globe. And we have been told from day one that the Earth is round, and it certainly looks like it is. But is it? When you see the sun moving in the sky, we're told that the Earth is rotating. But is it? You know, the more I try to prove the flat Earth, the more I just want to talk about the heliocentric theory, the idea that we're moving at a 1,000 miles an hour right now. Right now, even though you're in New York and I'm down in Florida, we're both moving at a 1,000 miles an hour. And at the same time, we're moving at 66,000 miles per hour around the sun. And at the same time, the Milky Way is expanding at about 2 million miles per hour. The moon is 400 times smaller than the sun, yet 400 times away from the sun. I just don't have that kind of faith to believe in the heliocentric theory, which pulls me towards the geocentric theory. And it took me over a year to come to these beliefs, and I don't expect to convince anyone tonight. The only reason I wrote the book was to get people to think for themselves and stop relying on the spoon-fed reality, the lies we've been fed our whole life. I do believe we live on a flat earth. And I do believe if you try to disprove it, you'll become a believer, because that's exactly what I did. And if you don't think this theory is insane, you're not sane, because everyone who has ever investigated the flat earth has from the outset said, this is insane, and I'm going to disprove it. And that's my challenge to the listener tonight. Disprove it. Find out for yourself. For God's sake, don't believe me. 
do your own homework. That's that's a really um, important point. I know, and I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Mark Sargent. He was on the program not long ago. And uh, when I asked him that question, how did you come to these views? He said, well, he set out to disprove this idea. And the more he looked at it, the more convinced that there was no disproving it because it was the reality. Um, that seems to be the common thread through a lot of folks, at least that we've had on this program talking about this. What really proves it for me, JV, is just getting quiet and going to a quiet place outside. During the daytime, I see the sun moving in the sky because I believe the sun is moving in the sky. In the nighttime, I see the the moon moving in the sky because I believe the moon is moving in the sky. And when I step outside and I don't feel any movement, I don't believe we're moving. And when I see the stars rotate around Polaris, the North Pole, that also says to me we're not moving. There's so many things that say we're not moving as opposed to we are moving that if I'm just willing to put my disbelief on hold for a little while and open myself up to other ideas, maybe we've all been lied to. And this gets into the hollow earth. I'm not a believer in the hollow earth, but I'm going to pursue it like I did the flat earth. Maybe it is true. And if it is, it adds another layer of insanity and perhaps another layer of lies that we've been told our entire life about where we live. And and for me, JV, the hardest thing to believe is the sea firmament dome. That in fact, there is an ocean, a greater sea, as Enoch said in the book of Enoch, above us, In the fourth dimension, we live in the first heaven of the third dimension, and above that sea firmament dome is the fourth dimension of the second heaven, and that's where the luminaries, the stars, and the planets are. And then you have the third heaven, and then there's seven more heavens. So by reading the Book of Enoch and some of the other extra-biblical texts that have been thrown out and called heresy, I've actually grown to believe in God more than I did before I started this investigation, because everything points to intelligent design. It has to be intelligent design, and I think that's what they're hiding, ultimately. That was going to be the fact that there's a great architect who built this place, and we can't explain it. Yeah, Lee, that was my next question, because it's one that everybody asks, why the deception? Why is it so important for, whether it's a scientific community, whether it's governments, whomever it is that's leading this deception to do so. It would take a lot of people and a lot of uh, planning and a lot of work to create this deception. Why do it? Kissinger said power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. Neo in The Matrix asked the Oracle, what do they want? And she said, what do all men want? Power. Control. If it was revealed that the earth was flat and that we lived under a sea firmament dome, atheists would have to say, obviously, there's intelligent design. Who built this place? And all of a sudden, those people that run the world no longer have the control they had. We're going to run out of time here. I I have to ask this question, because if, if the atheists are afraid of the truth, this version of the truth, you know, um, and they are afraid of admitting there is an, uh, an intelligent design, therefore a creator. It seems to me if, if they were trying to hide that, it seems, and 
they would be paying the ultimate price because all those things we were told about a God and the afterlife would be denied to them. So it seems like they'd want to jump on board and not hide that. It's kind of a weird paradox. It is. And the, and the greatest paradox is, is, the, is the relationship between Christians and astrophysicists. I'm a Christian, but most Christians don't believe in the flat earth theory. And it's interesting to me that a Christian will say, well, of course man didn't evolve from an ape. That's evolution, and that's blasphemy. But by the same token, they'll go, of course I believe in the heliocentric theory that we revolve around a burning ball, because the evolutionists told us so. Well, are you going to believe some of what they say, all of what they say, none of what they say? It's interesting, the greatest bedfellows are Christians and astrophysicists. Um, this is this is a topic that's not going to be resolved anytime soon. Lee, again, thank you for joining us with another perspective on this. Your website is MorningStarsTale.com. Where else would you like to send folks to find out more about your work? Well, they can purchase the book at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. But again, if you just go to MorningStarsTale.com, I've uploaded the book because I made the decision. I just want people to read it, pass it on, and, and figure it out for yourself. Uh, there's no hidden agenda. I'm, I'm giving the book away at this point because I want people to begin their own journey for truth. All right. Well, thanks for being with us again, Lee. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, JV. Have a great night. Always interesting to see how blood gets boiling when we talk about topics like flat earth or even 9-11 conspiracies. And again, I just say that we like to present all sides. We hear all arguments. We let people offer their evidence, their ideas. And everybody can go away uh, and make up their own minds. That's what it's about. But we certainly don't need to be disrespectful to anyone. That doesn't prove anything, and it certainly doesn't help our relationships with our fellow man. So thanks for being here. I didn't mean to be uh, jump on a soapbox here, but uh, I felt it was necessary to at least say that. We've got a great program tomorrow night. We're going to be talking with um, Lee. Who is it? Lee Harris. He's an energy healer. I knew it was Lee. We had a bunch of Lees, Orion, didn't we? Uh, Lee Harris is an energy healer. He's going to be giving practical guidance, inspiration, and a clear blueprint for growth and change, including how to invoke the help of our spirit guides and angels. So that'll be a great program on tomorrow night's show. Um, That's going to do it for tonight. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Thank you so much for being here, and I'll catch you all tomorrow. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.